Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This is the word of the Lord. Well, friends, as we always do, uh, let's take a moment to pause, quiet your heart and mind as much as you're able. Maybe take a few deep breaths, invite the Holy Spirit into that place, and then we'll get started. All right, well, thank you to Abby for reading our scripture for us. And as was just read, we are continuing to look in uh, Jesus' series of teachings that he gave there on a mountainside, commonly called the Sermon on the Mount. Before we jump into our passage for this morning, I want to tell you a quick story. Uh, This, as many of you will know without even me saying, is a, a Bluetooth speaker. Um, I got this speaker five or six years ago, and what happened was I, we had had one, Sam and I had had a speaker before that that we had just lost, and so I jumped online thinking, let me do a quick little bit of research and see you know, what some of the good Bluetooth speakers are that, that we can get for our, our next speaker, and, and I stumbled across these guys, and it was actually on a Kickstarter campaign at the time. I would assume many of you are familiar with Kickstarter, but for anyone who isn't, Kickstarter is one of those platforms where uh, a, a creator or an artist says, hey, I have this project, I have this idea for a product, but I need help with funding, would you support me? And different you know, members of the public can contribute a lot or a little to that project or to see that product become a reality. And usually when it's a product, if you give a certain amount, you get that product, maybe at a slightly reduced rate, then it will eventually be sold at. So that was the case for this campaign. And these guys that, that did the campaign for this did a great job of kind of telling a story. I'm a sucker for a good story. And sure enough, they got way more backing than they asked for. Most uh, creators of a Kickstarter campaign set a goal. They way exceeded that goal. And when I backed it, they said in, at that point, they said in about two months' time, we'll start shipping out speakers. And these guys did such a good job with this campaign that the community around them was huge and was excited about this new Bluetooth speaker. People, there's this way you can chat with other people who've supported a campaign on Kickstarter, and people were all about it. Well, about six months went by and nobody had received any speakers. And I became more and more engaged in this, not commenting, I don't think I ever commented, but in watching this online community around this campaign. Because you kind of saw the full spectrum of uh, p- the human condition, in a sense. You saw the, the true believers, the people who had no doubts. Sure, they've hit a couple snags in production or whatever, but the speaker's coming and it's going to be awesome. And then you had the other people who were pretty quick to pick up a stone and start throwing it at these guys doing this campaign who had not yet delivered. 
Well, then, sure enough, a month or two after that, so, you know, six or seven months after they said they were going to be shipping, they finally started to ship speakers. I hadn't gotten mine yet, but some had, and some of the people online started to, well, frankly, mixed reviews started to come in, that the, the quality wasn't quite what was promised. You know, the sound was good, but, but not great. And so I told myself, Spencer, you need to lower your expectations for this speaker. And I tried. But sure enough, a month or two after that, I finally got mine. And none of you will be surprised to hear that it is an okay Bluetooth speaker. It didn't change my life. And also probably you will not be surprised to hear that despite all of that, I still felt disappointed. I felt let down. Because the truth is, friends, we cannot give money, you know, investment, time to something and it not go the way we had hoped and not feel disappointed. It's just the way that we as human beings are. I gave time and, and money into this campaign and I told myself, just don't get your hopes up. And yet I still was disappointed in the end. And though this is kind of a, you know, a little bit of a silly example, these are the sorts of questions that Jesus is going to get at in these verses this morning that we're going to look at. These are the kinds of questions that he's asking. Where does your allegiance lie? Where are you making your investment in life? In, in scriptural terms, who or what has your heart? And really, these are the, <clears throat> the same sorts of questions that he's been asking throughout the last series of teachings in the Sermon on the Mount. Think back a few weeks ago to Cam's teaching. And, you know, posing these questions, hey, when you give to the poor, who, who are you doing that for? Where is your heart in that? Or uh, the Lord's Prayer that we just did this Discovery Bible study type uh, study last week. Jesus starts the Lord's Prayer in Matthew by, or he introduces it by asking some of these questions. Right? Hey, are your prayers for the sake of seeming smart or holy or are they <clears throat> a conversation with a God who loves you? Mary Oliver, an excellent poet whose spirituality was very interesting and, and, and somewhat hard to pin down exactly what she would have called herself. But it, she had a poem called, I think, Just Prayer. And in that poem, here's an excerpt of it. She writes, Just pay attention. Then patch a few words together and don't try to make them elaborate. This isn't a contest, but the doorway into thanks and a silence in which another voice may speak. Is this what your prayer life looks like? Or, or, or fasting. Jeff Hesseling presented at one of our formation workshops a number of weeks ago on fasting. And he said, fasting is setting aside good gifts in our lives in order to be closer to the giver. Where's your heart? And these are the same themes and questions that Jesus is going to confront us with in this passage that we're looking at today as well. A quick little outline. You should see this on the screen for where we're headed. Three parts really to this passage that we're looking at. The first, verses 19 to 21, are this encouragement to watch where you invest because your heart will follow. Watch where you invest, your heart will follow. Verses 22 to 23, Encourage us to make sure that we're seeing rightly because our heart depends on it. Make sure you're seeing rightly. Your heart depends on it. And finally, verse 24, in the words of Joshua, back in the Old Testament, Jesus is inviting us to consider this day whom we will serve. 
So that's a little bit of an outline. Let's give a bit of context that might be helpful for the passage. In the Roman Empire, more than half of the total wealth of the whole empire was concentrated in the top 1% to 2% of the populace. Not so different from today, is it? And so up to 70% of the population were struggling farmers or fishermen or subsistence laborers. And they were generally paid a denarius uh, each day. A denarius was a day's wage. And that denarius would, would generally cover the cost of food for the family for the day, often with a little bit, a sliver left over. And most of Jesus' followers, the audience for this teaching, would have consisted of that poor majority in the empire. Why do I give this little bit of context? Well, if these people that Jesus taught this, spoke this, these teachings to, had a fraction of the discretionary income, and discretionary income is, is how much money you have left over after you cover your basic necessities, you know, food and shelter. If they had a fraction of the discretionary income that the majority, not all, but the majority of you and I have today, and yet Jesus still felt it necessary to teach them this, to give them these words, how much more so ought we to heed Jesus' words, heed his warnings? We who generally have more left over at the end of a paycheck to consider where that money will go, what we will do with it. Again, not all of us are in that position, but many of us are. So with that, let's look at verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Again, a a little bit of context for, for what Jesus is talking about here. There were a number of different ways to kind of store your wealth, if you will, in that culture. Different than how we would do it today, but in some ways not so different. One was fine apparel. Uh, uh, your, your clothing was a way to sort of invest in that culture. If you remember, Matt said a few weeks ago in his uh, teaching on, on, on Jesus' teachings about enemy love, sometimes um, clothing was used to settle a debt or to, to, uh, to pay in, in a lawsuit. Clothing was an investment. Another piece of context, people would often keep all of their savings in a strong box, this locked box that they would keep hidden in their home somewhere, or even sometimes hidden in some secret location, buried somewhere. Think of Jesus' parable of the treasure discovered in a field. Not that that was happening all the time, but it was a possibility, because at times people went and concealed their their savings somewhere. And this presents a unique set of vulnerabilities that Jesus talks about. Moths can destroy clothing, can render it, you know, practically useless. Rust can corrode metal. And thieves can break in and take a strong box and and your savings can be wiped out. And it's easy for us to think, man, thank goodness we don't live in that world we have a little bit more, better systems um, to ensure those things don't happen. And yet I don't know that we're quite so far removed from that or those problems as we like to think we are. I heard this really interesting talk a couple of weeks ago from a, a Christian talking about the future of currency. 
and he was actually a, a proponent of cryptocurrency, both just, I think, for the sort of way that it works, but also the morality of cryptocurrency. And he talked about some of the challenges around our regular sort of fiat currency system, and he talked about the U.S. dollar in particular. Many of you will know this, but for many around the world, the U.S. dollar <clears throat> is seen as the best saving option. If a, a poor person in a, a, a developing country, particularly where the currency is particularly vulnerable or volatile, think of a place right now like Venezuela, if someone can get their hands on U.S. dollars, that is what they want to save. And yet, the Federal Reserve in the U.S. last year alone expanded the money supply, expanded the supply of U.S. dollars by printing more money from $15.5 trillion to $19 trillion in one year. And what that means by printing all of that new money is that the value of every U.S. dollar around the world goes down just a little bit. For every new dollar that sort of comes into existence, the value of all the other dollars goes down just a bit. But that has a cumulative effect as more and more and more dollars are printed. And the, the value of those dollars that some, someone has saved up slowly gets ebbed away. It's not a physical rusting, but a kind of slow digital corrosion. And if the last few years, frankly, just speaking more generally, if the last few years have shown us anything, it's that no institution that we want to put our trust in is invulnerable. Not the housing market or healthcare systems, not the SATs or social networks or celebrity pastors. As soon as we start to think someone or some system is incorruptible or worthy of all of our trust or investment, it's usually then that we're shown the flaws or the corruption in that system, and that's generally not a pretty reveal. <clears throat> Thankfully, Jesus gives us an alternative in verse 20. Instead, we ought to, he says, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. In other words, Jesus is suggesting that the only fail-safe investment is in God's kingdom. My old university president, I think I've shared this before, always used to say nothing is wasted in God's economy. And this is not a new concept that Jesus is, is teaching here. There was this idea uh, promoted in the Old Testament that, that our, our best investment was with God. Hear these, these verses from Isaiah chapter 33, verses 5 to 6. The Lord is exalted, for he dwells on high. He will fill Zion with justice and righteousness, and he will be the stability of your times. Abundance of salvation, wisdom, and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure. The, the fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure. He will be the stability of your times. How many articles, publications uh, in the world of finance talk about, here's your safest investment right now. 
Israel understood he's the stability of your times. The Lord is Zion's treasure. And the Lord's prayer that Jesus just taught his disciples earlier in in the sermon shows this kind of perspective in life. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. I am not king. Your will be done, not mine. Give me this day daily bread. And then Jesus sort of brings this to a point, this section of, of our teaching this morning. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Notice he begins verse 21 with four. He's saying, here's why what I've just said is important. Don't store up treasure on earth. Store it up in heaven. Because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Don't believe the lie that you can have all your security tied up over here and still give God your heart. And so I want to pose a question. I didn't come up with this question. I, to my knowledge, I'm stealing it from Tim Keller. He likely potentially stole it from somebody else. But it's a good question. And one I want us to reflect on for a few minutes. And, and this is a very personal question. And so if you just want to reflect on this in silence, feel free to do that. Or if you're with others and you feel you know, comfortable enough with them to share some of your thoughts, I'd encourage you to do that as well. The question is, is there anything in your life that if you were to lose it would make your life a little bit less worth living? And of course, there are many good things in our lives that would be difficult and painful to lose. The question here is just inviting us to really be honest about where our allegiances lie and perhaps where our ultimate allegiance lies. So think about that question for a few minutes. Welcome back. In this next section of this passage we're looking at, Jesus gives some, it gives us a bit of a a suggestion or or a starting place as to how to, maybe if we're discovering our hearts aren't quite oriented the the way that we want them to be, maybe a starting place to begin to change that. Look at verse 22. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, then your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. Our eyes bring illumination. In other words, prioritizing our allegiance in life, where our hearts will be, starts with how we look at the world around us. And how we process that information. It's, it's, it's hard for us to pick up on this in an English translation. But there's kind of some, some wordplay going on here in what Jesus says. See, when he says, uh, if your eye is healthy. Healthy there is this word haplos. And it can really have two meanings. The first is, is, is being healthy or, or sound or properly functioning. And this makes sense, right? If our eyes are healthy, then, then our, our hearts are going to be aligned correctly. You know, do I have daily bread? You know, as I look at my table, yes, I've got food for today. Perfect. You know, I have enough. 
These, are, these eyes that are sound will lead to an allegiance securely with God. Eyes that are properly functioning, measuring things correctly by kingdom standards. But then haplos can also pertain or refer to willing and generous giving. And this makes sense as well, doesn't it? Particularly when we think back on what Jesus has just been teaching in some of these previous weeks that we've been looking at the sermon. You know, when an opportunity arises, when I see an opportunity to be generous, what do I do? Do I stop and look around and, you know, see what kind of social credit I'm going to gain? You know, who's watching this? Who's available right now to see what I'm about to do? Or do I simply see an opportunity to be generous and, and delight in it? An eye that looks at the world generously leads to a heart that is secure with God. And this is contrasted with, as Jesus says, an eye that is bad. Poneros is the word. And this can mean worthless or sick. And this makes sense when we think about it a little bit, doesn't it? The, sadly, the predominant lens or one of the lenses through which our, many in our culture and sadly we at times as well, look at the world is, is through a consumerist lens, which I think we could agree is at times, if not all the time, very sick. Always looking, needing more, never seeing enough, wanting more, needing bigger, better. And friends, if I can be honest, I've grappled with this teaching. Uh, I don't say that, you know, I, I've, I now live by this. <laughs> Um, This isn't to lift myself up, but to humble myself before you. And and, and I'll be honest. So I I have uh, parents who were, my mom in particular, was an incredible, my mom is still alive, but I mean growing up, um, my mom was an incredible bargain hunter. Okay, she could find deals in remarkable ways. I think I've inherited some of that, but I put this this unhealthy twist on it at times where if I see something that's a good deal, I feel this need to buy it. Even if I don't really need that thing. It's a good deal. Why why wouldn't I? And frankly, friends, I I would say that sometimes that goes so far as a little bit of a, a, a sickness at the way I'm looking at the world. R.T. France, in his commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, summarizes this little teaching Jesus gives about our eyes this way. He says, So this rather obscure little saying seems to be using a wordplay which the English translator can't reproduce without extensive paraphrase. But why is Jesus doing it? In order to commend either single-mindedness in pursuing the values of the kingdom of heaven or generosity or more likely both, as a key to the effective life of a disciple. And the the alternative, right, sick eyes, if left unchecked, will lead to misplaced allegiances, which at some point will come back to haunt us. Think of Jesus' story in, in Luke's gospel, of the his parable of that farmer who's crops, his fields keep producing more and more, and he thinks, Where, what am I going to do with all this? And instead of looking out beyond the, the walls of his property to see where are their needs, he looks in and says, that barn needs to be bigger, that barn needs to be bigger, more, more, bigger, bigger. And it culminates in Luke 12, 20, verse 20 and 21. But God said to him, fool, 
think an apt definition of a fool is someone who looks at the world and sees it wrongly, right? Fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And so another moment for reflection, and and this is going to be a little bit unique, friends, okay? But I would invite you to participate in this with me, please. I also should say it'll be a little bit tough initially. Um, I'll explain why. I want you to take a few minutes and imagine yourself um, wandering around Dundas Square in downtown Toronto during non-COVID times. It's it's bustling with, with people. Um, and, and just imagine yourself, I, I know this is going to be hard for us because it's been long, a long time since we've been able to do something like that. So get over the, the, the initial pang of sadness if you, if you could. And imagine yourself wandering around, taking in the sights, the sounds, the smells. You know, in, in remarkable ways, an urban space like Dundas Square there, that's where the Eaton Center uh, empties out. Young and Dundas there in downtown Toronto. If you've never been there, picture any sort of urban center. In remarkable ways, places like that can show us the full spectrum of existence in our society in many ways. The highest heights to the lowest lows. The, 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 the interactions on the biggest scale, giant corporations competing with one another. And on the smallest, a mother feeding a child a snack or a stranger asking for change. And so there'll be a picture on the screen if it's been so long that you can't even imagine what Dundas Square looks like. But picture yourself in that place wandering around and think who or what are your eyes drawn to in a space like that? What are you focusing on? What are your eyes, on the other hand, uninterested in or perhaps even actively avoiding? What gets you excited in a space like this? Or what gets you down? Go ahead and reflect for a few minutes. Well, now we arrive at verse 24, which in many ways is the sort of culmination of what Jesus has been saying in these previous verses. Look at verse 24. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now, before we look at this generally, just a quick textual note. Some of you probably have a little footnote there at money at the very end of the verse. Um, the word used there is actually mammon, which is, is an interesting word, interesting meaning. Maybe you have no idea what I'm talking about, and that's okay. But if you do, um, mammon was this, is really a concept meaning the whole of one's possessions, one's wealth in its various forms. But generally, after biblical times um, in history that proceeded after that, this concept of mammon sort of got mythologized. One of the sort of um, most prevalent examples was in um, Milton's Paradise Lost. He makes mammon a, uh, a fallen angel, a demon. 
And so it can, we can become a little confused. What is this concept of mammon? You know, what is it? Because Jesus does personify it here. You can't serve God and mammon. But really, uh, a Colin Brown in, in um, a theological dictionary just defines it well. He says, This isn't merely money in the strictest sense, but a man's possessions, everything that, he, uh, that has value, equivalent to money, and even all that he possesses apart from his body and life. So not an inherently negative thing, negative when it becomes something that we chase for its own sake, okay? You might think, what were we even talking about there? If, if you have no idea of this mammon concept, that's okay. But when we read a verse like verse 24, speaking again generally about the verse, uh, we probably have maybe one of two gut reactions. The first one is, hang on, no one is my master, that's sort of the, the predominant cultural spirit of today, isn't it? We identify with William Ernest Henley's poem, Invictus, which ends, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. No one is my master. Or you might think, well, of course you can serve two masters. You know, I work two part-time jobs or three or six part-time jobs. Um... I can sort of be all things to all people, and I'm quite proud of that. Jesus, however, is using the language here of a slave and their master. And slaves were wholly owned by one master. And so to borrow the language at the beginning of the passage, Jesus is teaching that our hearts will belong to someone Our ultimate allegiance will lie somewhere. And in some ways, the most dangerous thing that we could do is believe the lie that you can divide up your loyalties. There will come a day when pressed, when push comes to shove, where you'll realize that you were really devoted to only one all along. There's a challenge to this, though, friends, isn't there? You know, Jesus is kind of alluding all along to the fact that much of this happens beyond our our conscious awareness. He says, hey, in case you didn't realize this, you cannot serve two masters. But our hearts can slowly align, sort of realign themselves bit by bit, sometimes away from God, oftentimes away from God and towards other things. The writer of my favorite hymn, Come Thou Fount, seemed to understand this well. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. So, so my heart is taking steps, is turning away from you, God. I feel its, it's tendency to do that. So here's my heart. Take it. Seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Don't let me turn away. Don't let me realign my my loyalty, my allegiance to another. But friends, God, thank God that he knows us well enough to know this tendency. And so Jesus, in his wisdom, gave us regular moments to check the alignments, check the alignment of our hearts, to realign ourselves back towards him, his kingdom, his purposes in the world. And one such moment of realignment, of examining our hearts, is communion, which we will take now. Before I do that, let me pray. If you 
haven't gotten your elements, I'd encourage you to, to do that. But let's pray, and then we will take communion together. Jesus, I thank you. I, I see this whole teaching that you gave as such a grace to help us see Help us see these tendencies that we have that are so dangerous. Our tendencies to invest all of our, our wealth, our, our, all of our investment in life, to put all our value in, in one place and think that we can still give you our heart. Or, or to see the world and, and to look at the world day by day and not realize that we're looking at it with eyes that are frankly a little bit sick. Or to believe that we can have divided loyalties and that that, that will never have any consequences. Thank you for showing us the, the truth, Jesus. I pray that we would not simply walk away from this, uh, this, this time together and, and forget what you've said, but would constantly be taking moments through gathering together like this, through spiritual disciplines, to be seeing, to be checking the alignment of our hearts love you, Jesus. Here, here is our hearts. Here are our hearts. Take and seal them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul, friends, I think understood all of what we've just said and, and, and was alluding to it all in his encouragement to the church in Corinth when he talked about the Lord's Supper. He says in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 23 to 26, he says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me, in remembrance of Jesus. And then verse 25 says, In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Amen.